Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One, a leadership dialogue on energy, the economy, and environment. Our guest today is Chris Martinson, a scientist and futurist who has a PhD in neurotoxicology and will discuss the nexus between energy, economy, and the environment. How does America's soaring national debt relate to soaring carbon emissions? What does exponential growth tell us about both phenomenon? What does peak oil mean for our energy future? Please welcome Chris Martinson. Thank you, Greg. Thank you for that kind introduction. I want to uh, tell you how pleased and excited I am to be here tonight, and I want to thank the Commonwealth Club and its members for making this possible. But also I want to thank everybody here for coming tonight. I want everybody also to know that I thought really long and hard about exactly what I'm going to say tonight and how to say it. Um, We're going to be talking about some really big ideas here, and truthfully I struggled with just how far to go with this tonight. My final decision was to trust the intellect and instincts of this audience, and I'm going to be as clean and clear as direct as I can be tonight. Tonight we're going to uh, examine the obstacles that really stand in the way of a full and lasting economic recovery, and we're going to illuminate this by looking at the connection between economic growth and energy. But before we delve into the details and explore these possibilities, let me just tell you a little bit about myself and the power that this information I'm about to share with you had on me and my life and that of my family. Six years ago, I'm 42 years old, I have three young children, I'm living in a five-bathroom house in the coast of Connecticut, I'm vice president of a very large corporation, and I have a boat and a slip, twin-engine fishing boat. I loved that boat. (laughs) Today I live in a house that's less than half that size, it's in a rural location, I have a very strong community, and I've got a kayak, a small one. And so maybe that summarizes best the journey that I've been through. I went from twin engines to a double paddle, right? And I think that really captures it. Now, why did I do that? I did that because for the past six years, I've been combining trends and information in the economy, energy, the environment into one single comprehensive story. Instead of delving too deeply into any one aspect of this, I discovered there's immense value in looking across all three at once. Instead of being like a blind man, trying to describe just one part of an elephant, I chose to be like a blind man exploring the whole elephant. All right, okay, this took me a few years. It was a very big elephant. Um, Took me about five years. This exploration, though, it altered my investments, what I do, what I value, who I I associate with, my work, because I did quit that job as a vice president in order to take up this work that you're hearing about now. And the results of this exploration were put into a very comprehensive video form that's out on the Internet. I made it freely available to the entire world. It's called The Crash Course. It's been viewed about a million and a half times. It's in multiple languages now, uh, all by the actions of volunteers, I should say. The thing I'm known for at this point, I guess, is that I really, I called this economic downturn, and I did it well in advance. And I actually don't consider this to be one of my better analytical moments. Because as we're going to soon see... This was really about as predictive as telling which way a dropped anvil's going to go. 
So, you know, the thing that kind of gets me is a lot of people, uh, so-called economic experts, are still to this day claiming that they couldn't have seen this coming any better even in retrospect. So I told uh, about a decline in the dollar back in 2003. I called for a housing correction of 30 to 50% in 2007. I called for a 40% decline in stocks in May of 2008. And these were all provocative calls at the time, and I guess they're considered self-evident now. The question I want to explore, though, is how was it that I, I'm not an economist, I'm not a financial advisor, how did I see these things coming so far in advance? I did this by trusting myself and connecting a few dots. So here's an example of how I connect dots. Let's do it for the current economic crisis, and let's take it at the very highest level, because this is where where the best value comes from today, I think. While the entire narrative of this crisis was riddled with strange acronyms, you know, it's got uh, unfathomable derivatives and these really perplexing regulatory lapses, my view is that these are all just elements of the story. The main plot line can be summed up in just three words, too much debt. The big picture view of our difficulties is nothing more complicated than the fact that from 2000 to 2008, the total debt load in this country doubled. In eight years, our debt load doubled. Meanwhile, no new net jobs were created, and incomes actually went backwards for median incomes. And as everybody knows, the way you pay back your debts is through productive enterprise. And I don't care if you're an individual, a town, a state, a state government, a municipality, or a corporation. Really, those are your choices. If you have debt, you either pay it back or you default on it. And there are really no other ways to to go through that. Well, as we all know, when you have to pay your debts back and they're climbing, I guess to me it was completely obvious that once we saw that the means to pay those debts back were not also climbing similarly, that the end result was completely predictable. It was a debt crisis. And that's what we're in the middle of right now. And I'd love to take some credit for having some sort of a keen insight there, but it wasn't extraordinary. It was just common sense. A very large credit bubble. It developed right before our eyes, and it was completely obvious to anybody who cared to see it for what it was. And my view, my view now is that we're going to be living with this for a very long time, because I don't believe, I just don't believe it's possible to solve a crisis rooted in debt by going deeper into debt. And that's exactly what we're doing. I think it's kind of like trying to cure an economic heart attack by feeding the patient a few extra tubs of greasy debt. (laughs) So my assessment is that we're going to face an even bigger fiscal and maybe a monetary crisis in the future. It's that we're really, we're compounding our mistakes in this story. But you know what? We've faced economic difficulties before, and we'll face them again. And if this were the only problem we're facing right now, we'd solve this one. However, even as we're attempting to recover from these self-inflicted economic wounds, several vital facts stand in the way of a full and lasting recovery. So let me discuss those facts. Fact number one. This year, there are 70 million more people on the surface of the planet than last year. Fact number two. Every one of those people is going to be consuming some amount of resources, be it oil, soil, water, food, you name it. Fact number three. Someday perhaps already, but maybe a little later, the global flow rate of oil coming out of the ground will peak and then decline inexorably thereafter. Fact number four, every dollar in circulation was loaned into existence with interest. I'm going to get back to that one in a minute. Fact number five, during the Industrial Revolution, humans consumed vastly more energy each decade. So if, if you're 22 years old, 
You have been alive during the period of time when half of all the oil ever burned in all of history has been consumed. Fact number six, oceanic fish stocks, ancient aquifers, topsoil, more things than I can possibly count right now are all being depleted at unsustainable rates. When I view these facts, I I come to this opinion. Within our lifetime and that of our children, these disparate facts are going to coalesce into one of the greatest economic and physical challenges ever faced by our country, if not humanity. And it is also my opinion that if we do not develop a very clear picture of where we want to go in the world we wish to create, the economic chaos and turbulence we're experiencing right now will merely be the opening salvos salvos in a very long disruptive period of adjustment. But my belief is that we still have time, we have resources, we have the know-how to create a brilliant future of our own design, but that by putting our energies into sustaining the status quo, we are going to default into a future that's going to be shaped by disaster. And the reason I'm standing here right now is because I've dedicated my life to building a better future, and I'm doing that because I believe it can be done. I'm at once both realistic and optimistic. Now, you can be both. There's no law against it that I know of. But if you have the sense, though, that we are on the wrong track, that perhaps each day things are getting just a little bit more out of control, moving just a little bit faster, then you share my assessment of the current situation. But it doesn't have to be this way. An ever-growing number of people are opting to build a better future. So let me get back to those pesky facts. Each one was tied to all the others by some common feature. In each case, the thing being described was tied to exponential growth in some way. Now, I know that most of us aren't accustomed to thinking about exponential growth. So before you start counting the ceiling tiles, let me see if I can bring this to life for you. Suppose I've got a magic eyedropper of water. And it's magic because uh, when I drop a drop of water out of it, that drop is going to double every minute. So imagine I've placed a drop of water in your hand. It just sits there. But after a minute, you've got two drops of water. After six minutes, you have enough to fill a thimble. Do you have a sense of that, what that growth feels like? All right, so let's uh, skip that. Let's go now to a Major League Baseball park. And to make this really interesting, let's imagine it's watertight, and I've just handcuffed you to the highest row of bleacher seats. And it's tomorrow at noon. You are now manacled to a bleacher seat, and way down there on the pitcher's mound, I bend over and I put down one of these magic drops of water. And it's so small you couldn't possibly see it from where you're sitting, and it begins to double. My question to you is this. At what date and at what time is that huge stadium completely full? How long do you have to get out of your handcuffs? Days? Weeks? Months? Years? The answer is this. You have 49 minutes before the park is completely filled. 49 minutes to get out of your handcuffs. Now let me ask you this. At what time do you suppose the park is still 97% empty space? And how many of you realize the seriousness of your predicament? The answer is at 12.44, after just 44 minutes, after 44 full minutes, I should say, the park is still 97% unfilled. The first 44 minutes filled up 3%. The last five minutes filled up 97%. It took from all of human history until 1960 to have 3 billion people on the face of the planet, and it only took 40 years to add the next 3 billion. 44 minutes for 3%. Five minutes for 97%. And it's because we are surrounded by exponential growth that we need to appreciate it. 
for quite a while, everything seems just fine, and then the next thing you know, your park is overflowing. Time runs out in a hurry towards the end of any exponential growth system, and that forces hurried decisions, and it limits your options. So how does this then pertain to our economic predicament, you might ask? Well, the truth is there's really nothing inherently wrong with exponential growth. All you need is unlimited space and unlimited resources. If you have those, everything's pretty much okay. However, we do live on a finite planet, and there are clear signs now, very clear signs, that several key resources on our planet are in their final minutes, to use our stadium example. And few of these resources are as important to the health of our expanding economy as crude oil. Peak oil, if you haven't heard the term, is the global extension of the observation that individual oil fields, without exception, produce slightly more oil each year up to a point, the peak, after which they produce incrementally less and less and less each year thereafter until economics finally forces abandonment of the field. It is a fact that the United States hit its peak of oil production in 1970 at roughly 10 million barrels a day and that we now produce less than half that amount. And what holds true for America holds true for the rest of the world. We have peaked in our production, and someday the world as a whole will peak as well. We know this. It's also true that global oil discoveries peaked 45 years ago. And because discoveries must precede production, right? You've got to find it before you can pump it. Hopefully we can agree on that. We can be absolutely certain that production will peak too. So what I guess I'm saying here is that while we might disagree over the timing of peak oil, we can't disagree about the process. It's a geological process. And I'm focusing on oil here because without energy, no amount of additional money would make the slightest bit of difference in our lives. Economists, they love to say that, um, oh, higher oil prices, these are going to stimulate new oil production as if high prices themselves could magically create supply. So here's a joke. If you lock three economists in the basement, they're not going to worry about getting hungry because they know their grumbling bellies will soon make sandwiches appear. But out here outside of the basement, um, just as higher prices for fish are not going to cause more cod to come out of depleted fisheries, oil fields are going to yield their treasures in accordance to geological limits and not because some economics textbook says they should. On November 9th of 2009, the Guardian newspaper reported that a whistleblower identified as a senior employee of the International Energy Association told the paper that the world is much closer to peak oil than official estimates, but that the agency had toned down its reports to prevent panic in the markets. Now, while we might be tempted to dismiss these explosive charges, we really shouldn't, because the story is urgent whether it's true now or it's true 10 years from now. It's urgent because adapting to a future of less and less oil will take decades of preparation. It's urgent because when we consider the time, the scale, and the cost involved in switching over to an entirely new technology or energy platform, the realities are really quite startling. So just think about transportation for a second. It, for example, if the world magically could start churning out 50 million carbon fiber electric cars tomorrow, and these were the only things being sold across the whole world landscape, it would take 10 years to swap out half the global fleet. So time's a critical factor. But it's also doubtful that enough lithium exists in the world to create the batteries at that scale. And the next generation batteries are nowhere near going into production at that scale. So scale is an important thing to consider. And what's the cost going to be to get all this new technology out in place? And not just the dollar cost. I'm referring to the energy cost as well. Now, as sobering as these realities of time, scale, and cost are, there's an even more profound and immediate economic issue tied to peak oil. 
And I want to talk about this for a second. And to understand this particular idea, I'm going to go back to fact number four. Every dollar in circulation was loaned into existence with interest. Now, without getting into the details of it, which I do in the crash course, the effect of loaning out all our money into existence with interest is this. There is always more debt than money in our system. Always. If you want empirical evidence, consider this. You can go to the Federal Reserve website and look at it. There are $52 trillion of debts uh, that we can identify in our system, and there's about $10 trillion of what we would call money. $52 trillion of debt, 10 of money. The other feature is that the amount of debt is going to compound over time. That is, it's going to grow exponentially. The reason is, because there's more debt than money, new money has to be loaned into existence to pay back the prior debts, which means more money then has to be loaned into existence to pay that back, and so on and so on and so on. Because our debts are growing exponentially, it places incredibly strong pressures on our economy to grow alongside. After all, Debts are paid back out of the productive economy, and if debts are growing exponentially, the economy has to as well, or the debts can't be repaid. Now, as long as our economy is growing continuously, our financial system, which is really just a mountain of debts, is uh, pretty stable and perfectly happy. But if the economy slows down too far, or or heaven forbid, it it goes into retreat, it becomes unstable and it it threatens to collapse, causing government officials to panic and just blindly throw trillions of dollars into the financial system. It's a a tremendous emergency. Well, any six-year-old can spot the flaw in this system. Nothing can grow continuously forever. But the conundrum is that our current monetary system demands continuous growth. Fortunately, there are alternatives. Okay, so now we're in a position, we're going to join the economy and the energy situation together in a way that I hope will give you critical insight into what's going to happen next. This is the part where we talk about another totally predictable event heading our way. And in order to service debts then, think of it this way, cash flow representing real wealth has to be generated. And all wealth comes from the resources of the earth. To understand what I mean, let me break this down. Let me segment what we call wealth into three buckets. Um, primary sources of wealth, those come directly from the earth. Think of that as rich soils and concentrated ore bodies and energy that comes out of the ground. If you own any of these, you have wealth, and you might even be wealthy. Secondary wealth occurs from the actions of people, taking those and bringing them and transforming them and bringing them to markets. Rich soil becomes food, ore becomes iron, and oil becomes gasoline. But there's a third type of wealth, mainly consisting of paper abstractions that we layer all over the first two. Examples would be credit default swaps, mortgage-backed securities, and even stocks and bonds. And what's important to understand here is how these wealth sources are layered on top of each other. Without primary wealth, you can't have secondary wealth. And without these two forms of wealth, the paper wealth would have no meaning, and it really wouldn't exist. Now, what this gives us an important insight into is that the abundance of the earth is our primary source of wealth. And this should be obvious. But it's easy to forget living as we do in a world that worships abstract wealth. So, given that all wealth comes from the earth, it might be wise to ask ourselves if, you know, just from time to time, is there anything in this story that might give us pause? What exactly does an exponentially increasing mountain of debt expect? Well, it explicitly assumes an exponentially increasing supply of primary and secondary wealth. And this has largely been true up to now. Each year, more energy, more copper, more food, more everything has been produced and distributed. 
But how much do we really want to depend on that always being true? Is there anything on the horizon that might call this model into question? One expectation about peak oil is that once the decline gets underway, available oil is going to shrink by 3% to, 3% to 5% per year. And that's if we're lucky, and more if we're not. And this is going to translate into a roughly comparable level of economic decline. And given that we've not really yet begun the immense project of reorganizing our energy infrastructure, it's pretty much a guaranteed feature at this point. So what's a 3 to 5% decline in the economy feel like? Well, that's easy. It feels like 2009, because that's roughly how much the world economy shrank. If we tie those two pieces together, the risk is that peak oil will translate into an endless series of 2009s, one after the other. Well, the question then becomes, is it possible to grow our economy in a way that's going to satisfy all that existing debt that we've got out there without also requiring growth in fossil fuels? Well, if that's possible, nobody has yet articulated how to do that, at least specifically. And without such a plan, I can tell you exactly what will happen, and this is really not a pleasant set of predictions. An energy crisis that is rooted in resource limits will quickly translate into the most profound economic crisis we've ever had. What follows next will be a very disappointing string of associated crises, starting with a food crisis perhaps, maybe progressing through a profound fiscal crisis, maybe even a dollar collapse, before proceeding to a population crisis. But you know what? If we choose, we can avoid that future. The good news is that we don't need any new technologies to save us. They're going to be really nice when they come along, and I'll applaud them, but we have everything we need right now to align our economics and our resource use with reality. And we don't need any new understandings to be developed. Brilliant people have been working at the margins for decades on defining these issues and figuring out how to do more with less. What we lack is political will. But there's good news here, too, because more and more people are waking up all the time to the fact that humanity's long experiment with more is about to become an exciting new chapter. Where people's minds go, eventually politics will follow. Now, the really excellent news is that if we manage the transition elegantly, we can actually improve things. I'm thinking of a life with less pollution, with more free time, meaningful jobs, more happiness, less stress, greater connection to each other and to nature, I see all of these as within the realm of the possible, but only if we correctly diagnose the predicament and respond accordingly. Our challenge, then, is not to find vast new resources to exploit, but to undertake the far more sophisticated and worthwhile task of using what we've got more wisely. So I remain hopeful and optimistic, not because of anything I see on the political landscape, honestly, but because of the fact that you're listening to me right now. You get it. I get it. More and more people are getting it every day. But we'd get there faster, a lot faster, if we had a common vision, a national narrative to follow that made sense, and leadership that would inspire us and get us there. And if we want to create a better future and live in a world that's shaped by design and not by disaster, we're going to have to develop dramatically different ideas, values, priorities, and begin to refashion what we do around these ideas. We need to begin telling ourselves new stories about who we are and what's really important. In the past, with extremely abundant resources, uh, we had the luxury. We could make bad choices without really suffering any major consequences. But the stadium, it's now mostly full. The water's coming up the stairs. And our margin for error has shrunk considerably. The longer we fiddle around, the more our options shrink. 
Today, our wrong choices are going to be magnified, magnified manifold by virtue of where we are in our resource depletion curves. But so will the good choices. We must become intelligent and creative stewards of what remains. The best news is that I know we can do this. We need our bright, shiny kids coming out of college in the next generations to know that they've got an important role and that we've got their backs while they wrestle with some really large challenges that have been laid at their feet. Change is not easy, and sometimes it's necessary, and I think we find ourselves at that time of need right now. How the future turns out, that's up to us. We have a responsibility at this time. I feel a strong responsibility. I don't have all the answers. I can barely conceive of all the things that need to be done, let alone imagine all the details. But I do know that the first step begins with a proper understanding of the issues and that we are now in an era where the very biggest picture is the one that serves us best. There's an elephant in the room, and we need to put all our hands on it and describe it as accurately and as fully as we can. The alternative is to somehow miss seeing the next most predictable crisis in all of history. In closing, I am not at all depressed by what I see coming or exhausted by the thought of all the work that's laid out before us. Truth be told, I'm excited to be alive at this point in time. I get to be in the game when the entire trajectory of humanity may shift course. You can't ask for more than that. I have a proposal. Together, let's create a world worth inheriting. Thank you. Just a couple minutes here to reorient, get the cameras set, and uh, pull the podium out. So uh, while, while they're doing that, um, did you have an interesting talk with Elliot Spitzer? I did. <laughs> Good. Not often that we have, uh, it occurred to me that we were over there that, well, you talk about the economy, and he knows a lot about financial regulation. You guys should meet, and hope you had a nice little chat back there. Um, yeah, I found myself in the awkward position of being more optimistic than he was. <laughs> Doesn't happen often. <laughs> I won't ask you for details, but... TV is a lot harder than radio, isn't it? A lot more preparation. <clears throat> Chris Martinson, welcome to Climate One. Thank you very much, Greg. Thanks to us that uh, distort reality. Do you have some specific examples of that? Uh, they come out almost every day. I want to. I want to think about. Um, in the third quarter 
of, of this past year. It was reported that U.S. GDP grew at 2.2%. Uh, that's the best sort of a statistical number, I think, that money can buy. But when we look under the covers and we ask ourselves some, some more basic questions, we'd, we'd ask, how is it possible for the economy to have grown 2.2% while port shipments were down 20% and autos are still way down from the year prior and housing sales are still off by a considerable amount, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, it's really become endemic in this country through multiple, multiple administrations that what happens is we, we have a systemic bias in our numbers that paints a slightly happier picture. It, it maybe uh, provides some political cover. It's, uh, uh, it makes us look a little bit better in our own eyes. But the problem is it's distorting the true picture of where we are. I, I liken it to flying a plane whose altimeter is off, and if we're going through a mountain pass, that's a, a really unfortunate situation. So, yes, yeah, statistics on Prozac or something. <laughs> um, so you mentioned that statistics are off in, in many different ways, and also that different politicians in both political parties have done this over time. Tell us about that, how, how this has happened going back to the 60s. Well, it's, it's really, I think it all starts out innocently enough. Um, it's, I can think we can find examples all the way back to the Kennedy administration where issues around unemployment were first sort of modified and, and, and massaged a little bit, and it just gets continued from administration to administration. I think that now we're in the situation where it's, it's institutional, and you know, it's systemically institu- institutionalized at this point. So it's, all, it's really hard to detect. I bet if you went into the Bureau of Labor Statistics and really dug in there, you'd have a hard time finding out just the ways in which this has all happened. But it's really, it's been a very slow-growing thing that's been happening for a long time. And it really doesn't matter when everything's growing well and we don't have to have accurate instrumentation, but we completely missed uh, this last economic turn because we had bad, bad instrumentation. And also we're probably going to miss, oddly enough, when the recovery really starts to happen because, again, the dials are going to be a little bit off. So having good, solid, accurate information, if you want to manage anything, let alone a whole country, you absolutely owe it to yourself to have the very best numbers you can get. Well, what information sources do you trust? What are the best ones? You know, I don't trust any one source of information anymore. We actually have very good information in this country, and I I enjoy it, but I have to let it um, uh, be... Uh, backed up and validated through other methods and other things. So the best data I like, actually, I do have some I like. I love sales tax data because it's just simply added up, and that's that. Nothing else happens to it. It's not seasonally adjusted. We don't, we don't uh, modify it for any sorts of uh, uh, other adjustments that might happen. It's just added up, and it's very timely. And the sales tax data is giving us a very good read on what's going on right now. Another statistic is, is population. You talk a lot about population. I believe it's the forecast for 9 billion people on planet Earth by mid-century. Some people think it won't get that high. Do you think we'll get to 9 billion? Uh, we could, but if we do, it's gonna, I don't think it's going to be a very pleasant place uh, to be at that point in time. There's already so many strains on, on the world at this point. A significant number of people get their primary protein source from the oceans, and the oceans are clearly a fish to exhaustion in a number of places. So um, we're on a track to go to $9 billion, and it's hard to conceive of what sorts of things would, would moderate it so we don't quite get there. So it's hard to conceive of what moderate it. Well, starvation, do you think Mother Nature will start to self-regulate the, the carrying capacity of the earth and that, that whether it's climate change or food shortages or water shortage will put downward pressure on that population growth? Well, you know, humans haven't had um, what biologists would call negative feedback in quite a while. Most populations get negative feedback from something. Something in your environment gives you that signal back that says, whoa, you know, uh, enough. And if you're, if you're a reindeer on an island, you know, you go through this enormous uh, population explosion, but then all the lichen gets eaten away and there's a population crash. I'm really hoping that we can avoid that particular outcome for ourselves because, you know, we've got the opportunity. We can see it coming. We can see the pressures that are already there. 
in food. Uh, most people aren't aware of this, but out of every calorie of food that we eat currently in the world, 10 calories of energy was put into that, usually from fossil fuel inputs. And without that 10-calorie energy subsidy, food is a lot harder to come by. So, yes, I would think food would probably be the limiting factor before anything else at this point. You wrote recently about Bill Gates, who had some very uh, dark comments or view of, of uh, the earth in terms of heat uh, and food and energy shortages. Tell us more about that. Uh, Bill Gates? Yes. Um, I only read some comments that he, he put out today. I, don't, I haven't, didn't write much about okay. Bill Gates. I, uh, I think that's, I saw that on one of your, your daily posts. But, uh, well, um, then how about yourself in terms of how those things, those negative feedback loops, will, will start to put pressure um, uh, on, you mentioned food. How about energy shortages? How could that affect the, the negative feedback loop? Well, so population and all of the advances, everything that I really know and love about living in this wonderful, complicated society with, with all of its technological advances, energy has been the lifeblood of that. And so we can clearly look forward and see that, energy is coming to some sort of an end. It's going to plateau for a while, and then it's going to start going backwards. This is, a, it, this is such a profound concept. It's really hard to get across. Everything that we know about that's in our language structure, in our institutions, all of that has been, has been sort of grown through history in a time when humans have always had one new continent to go to, um, one extra resource to find. And so this is going to be one of the most interesting turning points in human history, if this theory holds right, that I think is just as, as interesting as when we came down out of the trees. We're going to have to find a way to reorganize ourselves with the knowledge that there isn't another continent to go to. There isn't a next source of energy that we know about at this point. Another Nothing's planet. Been identified. Yeah. No, there's no extra planet hidden on the backside of the sun waiting for us to find it. Well, on peak oil, uh, it's quite a controversial topic. A lot of people have spoken here about that, and some people believe that every time people talk about peak oil, there's another massive discovery off the sh- uh, shore right. of Brazil, which happened recently, and deniers say, yeah, yeah, peak oil, but then, look, we just found a whole bunch more. This is absolutely why I'm, I'm a huge advocate that people need to understand that the best thing you can do is educate yourself on these things. So. Think about, you know, when we found Spindletop, that huge find uh, in this country, uh, we stuck straws into the ground that went down about 1,100 feet, and oil came shooting out under pressure. And Is this the one in Southern California? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and it was just, it was an amazing find. Um, the Tuva find, which is one off the coast of Brazil, is, is about 28,000 feet down. It's got a mile of molten salt between it and us. Uh, they had to break six drilling records to get to it. Yes, we can get oil out of there, but to say that that's the same as what we used to be getting out really is absolutely not the case because we have to look at the energy it's going to take for us to drill down that far. Breaking six drilling records is quite a feat, and that's, what, that's the nature of all the finds we've had lately. The one that was just recently announced in the Gulf of Mexico is 35,000 feet down. Now, that's like drilling all the way through Mount Everest to find some oil. So the, the stuff that's cheap and easy to get, we've already gotten. The stuff that's left is harder and more expensive to get to. Absolutely. And, and the expense that I care about, I don't care about the dollars because, you know, we print them out of thin air. So is it $10 million a barrel or $10 a barrel? It doesn't matter. What we care about is what's the net energy. So if it takes us a barrel to find a barrel, it's game over because then we're investing one to get one, and that yields nothing back that we can use. Yes, we'll be able to keep the energy exploration wheel running for a while, but we don't have anything left to run society on, to, to grow our food and to transport ourselves to all those other things. So net energy, that's the thing that we really need to understand. And, and I would hope, you know, if I could, if I could like, you know, snap my fingers, get to do one thing, I would create a national commission that would just study net energy so that we could finally answer some questions. You know, should we insulate old existing structures or should we build corn-based ethanol plants? Well, we don't know. 
we can tell you how much it costs in money, but we have no idea from an energy standpoint which of those makes the most sense. Because that's not reflected in the price of the gasoline we pay, for example. Nope, it's not. So explain, so if there will be contracting supply, is it through the, the soaring price of oil that you think that this shock will come about, kind of like what we saw in was it the summer of 2008 when gas hit $4 a barrel? Is that we're going to see more of that, but it's going to continue? Right, so here, here's my sort of theory on, on all this. We had an oil shock back in 1973, 74. That was a geopolitical shock, but we had one. Um, you know, Carter put on his cardigan and said we have a, have a problem, and, and we chose to ignore that. And then 30-some, maybe almost 40 years passes, and then we had another one. But this shock w- was actually created out of two things. Yes, it was a price shock, but what most people don't know, we had a very unusual situation coming into that uh, early part of 2008 when, when oil hit $147 a barrel. We had just had out of the past six quarters of oil supply coming out of the ground, four of those were in deficit meaning the world was burning more than we were producing for four of those six quarters. That had never happened in the data series before. And this is when, at $147 a barrel, every country that could produce had the highest incentive they've ever had to produce. So I kind of trusted they were pumping flat out. And the thing that really, this was this is when I completely mm-hmm. changed um, mm-hmm. my sense of urgency, was seeing that we'd been in deficit for four out of six quarters worldwide. That was a real wake-up call to me. And that drove the price to 147 a barrel plus a little bit maybe speculators. Okay, because some people think there was more speculation and, and derivatives and futures that were, were driving it than fundamentals. Yeah, I think that's a very comfortable bedtime story. It, it's, it makes us feel good, but it, it's only part of the story. Okay, so how do we get off of this? What's this? Our addiction to oil. <laughs> well, uh, first of all, I think if we can just start telling ourselves some different stories. Uh, if you go over to Europe, which, which I do regu- pretty regularly, I find that they lead a pretty comfortable lifestyle, and they exist on half the energy that Americans do. So I'm going to have uh, my ingoing assumption is that we can do so much with conservation. That's the first thing. That should be the very first thing out of our lips, not how do we get a better technology or how do we find more oil really deep down, but how can we just conserve? And if we conserve well, I, I would bet we could probably cut our energy consumption in half, which buys us a lot of time, which I would love to get more time. And one, if we can do that, then we'll have the opportunity to really start thinking about how we're going to reorganize ourselves. Uh, and so, you know, there's all kinds of things on the table. Every, uh, gosh, high-speed trains, electrified trains, uh, uh, refashioning where we live and work and play so that they're a little bit closer together, um, reinvigorating our barge network so that we can move stuff by water, which is the most efficient way to move things. These are all things that actually present opportunities that, that could be ways that the economy could grow in a way that I would really fully support. I think it would, um, uh, there's just so many things we could be doing, but we're not doing them yet. And that's the part that's a little frustrating at this stage. Because Americans don't want to live like Europeans. I guess that's true, yeah. We don't want to do that. I lived in Canada, and the people, Canadians laugh at Americans. We're the, the country of big gulps, supersize everything, yep. right? Not a country of conservation. Uh, we know that driving 55 saves uh, gasoline efficiency. How many people drive 55? Right. You're not, you're not going to see that movie in America, Minimize Me. Right, right. <laughs> so not a big seller. So it gets to the behavioral aspects, and no politician is willing to stand up and say, we need to do, get by with less. It's always more, more, more. So how can either the behavioral change, behavior change or the political culture change uh, to move in the direction you're suggesting? Well, th- this is where my passion really lies. When I look back through history, I can't find a single example where the status quo was changed in Washington, D.C., so think about something you care about, women's rights, labor rights, the environmental movement, uh, civil rights. 
All of these things were brought kicking and screaming from the outside in. So my belief is that we need to do exactly what we're doing right here, right now. We change our minds. We create uh, a, a groundswell of, of what we want, and the politicians will follow. But they're not leading right now, to your point. I absolutely think they're not leading on this. Uh, I wish they were. But I don't know if they're going to in our society until we, the people, really put some pressure on them. And we're going to have to do that using, I think, it's going to be an old social movement again. You mentioned Europe. Are there any leaders in Europe that you respect who are doing this? Well, it's interesting. I'm going to be uh, in the U.K. in February, and I'm talking to an all-parliamentary group in the House of Commons about peak oil. So there at least they have the words there. I don't know if their actions are, are much further along, but they've already got the words being inserted into the highest levels of their discussions. And over here, uh, you know, we're not there yet. True. Um, they also have, have learned, some of the countries learned the lessons of, of the oil, 73 oil embargo better than the United States did and started to move right. in renewable directions further than the, than the United States. Um, are there any models that you see out there, countries that you say, ah, they're closer to what I envision where we ought to go? Well, I think we're all going to end up using a lot less oil one way or the other. Um, I think geology will do that for us. But I like what Sweden is doing. They have a plan at the highest levels of their government. It's called the 2020 plan. And they, they are going to be completely off of imported oil by 2020 if they execute their plan. And it involves all kinds of things from efficiency standards for buildings and transportation and new building design codes, all kinds of things. But they actually have a plan. They say, we've looked at this. Peak oil looks real. And we need to be off it. And we want to be off it by 2020. So in 10 years... Uh, Sweden's plan is is to not be importing any more oil. Small country, different scale, right. higher tax structure, different culture. Right, like I said, easy. Easy. What do you think about the current administration in Washington and the new people they brought? Do you are you impressed at all with their leadership or their direction? Well, I'd have to give a scorecard across a variety of things. Uh, economically, uh, I was extremely disappointed to see that I couldn't detect any difference between the administrations in terms of economic policy, especially with respect to the bailouts. Um, that was, a, a, I think, a, a disturbing moment for a lot of Americans because so many people were dead set against the bailouts. And uh, it, it, it really violated a basic tenet of fairness, which was that when I invest in a stock and it loses money, I lose money. Um, a lot of people who got bailed out made really bad bets. They were grown-ups, and they got completely bailed out. Not even they took a haircut. We're finding out in the, in the uh, AIG emails that they were given 100 cents on the dollar for uh, their mistakes. And so that, you know, when I look at that piece going across there, that to me is a, 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 I have to give very low marks to the administration on that front. Um, somebody agrees with me. Question from the audience. What specific policies or changes would you implement? Uh, you know, I think that what we're going to need to do is we're going to have to get a, um, a second and third and fourth set of, of currencies out there. So when I look at nature, nature has redundancy for everything. And I think we would do well to model that and learn from it. It's had billions of years to work out the right thing. And we've got a single, we've got a monoculture of money right now. You use Federal Reserve notes in this country, and that's that. And whether they're um, you know, managing that money poorly or they're managing it well, you're really stuck with that. So the first thing I would do, the very first thing, if, if I could, again, snap my fingers and create a policy, would be to have the United States government issue its own money directly and not borrow it. I haven't found anybody who can explain to me why we have to borrow money from ourselves in order to use it. Money's a, a commodity. It's something that, it's, it's, it's paper. We use it as a representational form to organize ourselves. It's a social contract. So first thing, we could create 
notes directly from the government, and then we would have a choice. Would you rather use these or those? But we need more, because every currency enforces some behaviors, punishes others. And so if we really want to incentivize people to do certain things, we might need things that don't even resemble at all the kinds of money we're using right now. So long term, I think we're going to need to develop sort of an ecosystem of currencies, if you will. Some of them could be very specific for locations and localities. Um, But this is something that I really feel needs doing. That would put the Fed out of business. Well, they'd put them in competition, right? Okay. I, you know, I love competitions. It makes, it makes businesses more efficient. It makes people work a little bit harder. Um, you know, can you imagine going to college with no competition? You know, I can't. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, another question from the audience about what are the best countries uh, and views of man- with regard to managing peak resources? Is it Asia? Uh, who manages peak resources well? I don't know if anybody manages them well yet, but I can tell you who's ahead of the game. So if we look across the landscape and at all the things that China has done in the past year, they've been pursuing a mercantilist policy. They broke out their checkbook. And if you just Google China resources, you will get this incredible list of news articles. Uh, They bought Copper uh, Valley in Afghanistan. They've been buying oil from Venezuela. They've been getting coal from Australia. They've been doing deals with Canada. They're all over the world right now, scrambling for resources. Now, this food, is food, food, the uh, land, particularly uh, growing land, arable land in Africa. So China, to me, looks like they're out of the blocks. They're running down. They're about a hundred yards up the track, and the United States hasn't even laced up its shoes, in a sense. Right. So, so do you see then resource that you see armed conflicts over resources in the classical sense? Well, I mean, that's that's certainly historically been been something that that's happened a lot. But when you ask the question. You know, who's playing the game? I think China's playing a game that makes sense to me because I can, you know, you can go to the U.S. Geological Survey, you can pull down some PDFs and, and ask the question, how many years of certain mineral resources are left? And of all the known quantities, we can look at many of them and say over, over, over in 10, 15, 20 years. And so if you're developing a policy of needing those resources and wanting to acquire them and have them for the growth of your country's economy, China is clearly playing a very different game than we are right now. So they're getting ahead to sort of corner the markets uh, in, in these areas before the prices are bid up. Then if the scarcity, as you, as you say, then why don't the financial markets reflect that? I think financial markets misprice things all the time. Uh, we certainly saw that very aggressively in the last couple of years. I hope it's obvious by now that financial markets get things wrong all the time, um, sometimes spectacularly. We still have faith in them, though, don't we? Mm-hmm. Some people do. No? <laughs> um, any thoughts on how to get the private sector involved in saving the world? The private sector. So I'm going to have a really interesting opportunity going out to Sonora, California uh, tomorrow. And there a whole community is organizing around this concept that the future is going to be kind of different than the present. And they want to, they want to organize their transition from here to there. And they want to do it as elegantly as they can. And, and so to me, this is This is the best that I can see out there right now. Our people have decided that there's this huge and growing gap between what's coming out of Washington and what they're experiencing in their own lives. And the way they're choosing to close that gap up is by not waiting for the leadership to come from outside, waiting for the leadership to come from within. And so the theme, if I could put a theme on this, it's really about we've, we, we gave our, uh, abdicated some responsibility out, trusting that we were going to lead our lives and Washington was going to conduct its affairs well and, and, and in accordance with our best interests. And people are starting to reel some of that back in and taking that responsibility back. So I, that's, that's really something that gives me a lot of hope today. Another question from the audience is whether a gas tax would help uh, minimize excessive cons- uh, consumption and help uh, perhaps ease uh, the transition away from a petroleum-based economy. Yes. 
Is that no? Listen, uh, we only have a couple of things in the record that we can look at where we know for a fact something caused people to start consuming less. This year, right now, I just looked at the at the gas consumption figures. This year, uh, in this last month, we consumed about the same amount of gas as we did in 1995, 15 years ago. And that only came about because of economic pressure. So the economy is a great way to send the right signals where you don't have to um, write the rules and hand people rationing cards and say you can only use so much. People will sort everything out if they're getting the right signals. So right now, you know, the uh, very conservative think tank did a study, and they found that of the price of gasoline at $3 a gallon right now, it would really be closer to 5 to $8 a gallon right now if we layered back in the cost of the military that we have protecting oil pipelines and, and supply routes and all of that. So gasoline is heavily subsidized in this country, and it's no accident that when you subsidize something, uh, you get people using more of it. So the way we expressed using more of that was building suburbs. You know, people live 90 miles away from work in, in some places, and um, that's what we chose to do. So, yes, if we, if we had higher prices in fuel, that would absolutely change behaviors. And the question is, what's the best way to do that? But any time a politician, very rarely will politicians suggest increasing a tax. And if they do, voters vote them out of office. Well, and I sympathize with that. And here's why. We found in 1985 and 88, Alan Greenspan sat before a commission and said, here's how we're going to fix Social Security forever. We're going to double the taxes on it, and it will fix it forever. And they did that. And all this extra money flowed into Washington, and then they spent it. They took the tech on know, other things on other things. Right. Sure. And so I, too, share that cynicism, which says, yes, go ahead. And if you're going to double my gas tax, I know what's going to happen to that. It's going to flow into fungible government coffers and it's going to get used for wars of choice and bridges to nowhere and, and, you know, all sorts of stuff. If we had a way, the way I would support it is if there was some ironclad way that we could be sure that that tax would flow into something where it would then only be you know used well california has a trust fund that that's uh, often rated <laughs> uh for other purposes we have a transportation trust fund it's supposed to be just what you're talking about yep but there's a there's a hole in it right so so i totally understand why why people say in principle i'm for a gas tax but in practice i, I would i would need to see some things hammered out before i could really support one wholeheartedly Another question from the audience about uh, huge amounts of oil and carbon in sands, uh, uh, tar sands in Canada, and those become economic as the price of oil increases. That becomes uh, prudent to then manufacture those things. So in a sense, when the price goes up, the supply of oil from tar sands increases. It does. Um, you know, there's an interesting case study, though, around um, uh, we also have uh, what's called like 10 Saudi Arabias locked in uh, what's called um, Shale oils. It's, oil's the wrong word, though. Uh, That's what we call them. It's actually shale kerogen. It's a waxy substance. It doesn't flow. But the Rocky Mountains are basically made out of this stuff. And about 30 years ago, they said, well, as soon as oil gets to $30 a barrel, whew, this is a go. And then oil got to 30 and they said, well, it needs to be 40 And then it got to 40 and they said, 50 50 is the magic number. And this is called the law of receding horizons because it costs so much to process this stuff that it makes sense at 30 Dollars a barrel. Um, when it's forty, it'll make sense. But by the time oil gets up to forty, everything you use costs more. And so they're finding a lot of those same impacts are happening now in the tar sands up in Canada. They're a lot more capital expensive than they thought. It looks like they need at least sixty to seventy dollars a barrel minimum to make those really work. But there's, we're still not entirely clear on that at this point. And so. Those, yes, there's a lot of fuel there, but uh, the amount of natural gas and water that you have to use to extract those fuels is enormous. Um, and it's just, it's not clear yet 
whether we can count on those as providing the same benefit to society as when we stuck a straw on the ground and oil came just roaring out. It's a very different proposition. I'm Greg Dalton, and my guest today at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is the author and futurist Chris Martinson. Another question from the audience uh, regarding Jeff Rubin, and tell us who that is, uh, recently predicted $225 oil for 2012. Given his track record, what do you make of his prediction about the price of oil? Oh, it's easy to predict. Um, Except for the future. Yeah, except for that part. well, so I, the model by which he's operating, I can understand, and the theory would go like this. Look, we've put tens of trillions of dollars of stimulus money into the world economy. It's just been dumped in by the ECB. That's the European Central Bank, the United States Central Bank, uh, by Canada, by, by uh, China. Everybody uh, in the world has basically started to pour this fuel into the economic engine, and we're hoping it's going to take off. Well, if it does... Uh, what's going to happen is we're going to find that within a year or two after the engine sputters back to life that we're going to run into an actual supply constraint. Remember I said that out of six quarters, four of them had had uh, actually less oil produced mm-hmm, than consumed? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it's even a dicier situation. I don't think we can get back to even those levels of production because in this economic crisis, we have not been investing in oil field maintenance and new discoveries and right. all of the supply issues. So we actually have probably today less supply than we had a couple of years ago for very good reasons. A number of fields have been collapsing a lot faster than we thought. The Cantarell field in Mexico is down 30% from peak. Uh, the North, fields, North Sea fields have been going down a lot faster. So his analysis says we come out of the gates – um, the economy roars back to life, and we run into this supply constraint, which will very rapidly turn into uh, much, much higher um, prices for oil. How he picks 225, I don't know. I mean, I could ju- you just pick a number at that point. Um, but, but in principle, in direction, I, I support that thinking. Given that view, whether you pick a number or not, uh, what are your investment themes, uh, given your view? Oh, this is easy. Um, you know what I'm investing in now? I'm investing in solar panels for my house, hot water solar panels. I think that's going to be the best possible return uh, on my money that I could find for the next few years. Um, I'm absolutely investing in uh, all things related to making my house more energy efficient because I'm convinced there's another energy shock coming. So remember I said before we had 35 years between shocks, you know, 70-whatever to mm-hmm. 2008. I think the next one's going to be in 2011 or 12. So that's a three-year, four-year difference uh, from, from shock to shock. And then I think it'll shorten up even further. Because what happens at 225 a barrel is it races up and it crunches the economy again worldwide, and we go back down, and maybe oil prices fall down. But it's really a a very uh, wild series of swings that we're going to see. And I feel like the best investment I could make right now is to make sure that my life, my house, my community, the people I know are prepared for that as best we can. And there's lots of things that that we can do to be more efficient, more effective, and uh, use alternative energy as much as possible. Do you go so far as to be independent and off the grid so that if the things collapse that your community will be insulated and okay, sufficient? No. No, that's, that's – I, I, you know, to be, uh, to be perfectly prepared is infinitely expensive. Um, I don't have that kind of money. So what I prefer to do is to just be a little bit resilient because the difference between being 0% prepared and 10% prepared, it's just night and day. So, yes, I've got a couple of solar panels. It's about 3% of my total electrical use. But if the electricity goes down like it did in this big ice storm we had last year, I'm not completely cut off. And I like having that sort of resilience built into my own, my own situation. How about people who can't afford solar panels? Solar is often viewed as sort of a rich man's uh, renewable. Uh, a lot of people can't afford renewable energy. How can, how can people with more modest means get into that kind of situation? You know, this is where we absolutely have to have a national policy for this. I, you know, if, if I, again, could wave my magic policy wand, um, 
I would have taken a trillion dollars, and we would have been able to not only buy panels, solar hot water panels, for every structure in this country, but we'd have money left over. Uh, this would have you been said a, solar hot water. Solar hot water. Uh-huh. I mean, that's the, that's the best, easiest, fastest return that you can get off of solar. Which is what China does a lot. There's very little of that in this country. Very little. You go to China, actually, it's mandated by law that when a building goes in, it has solar hot water panels on it. So, but that just makes perfect sense. The, the return on energy for energy invested off of solar panels is such a no-brainer for solar hot water. Mm-hmm. So absolutely, you know, for people who can't afford it, I think it's just an absolute shame that, 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 that we, that's the situation because we should absolutely be subsidizing that to every extent possible. And we should have a domestic industry here that's making the best panels in the world. But uh, we really don't have those things in place right now. A lot of that's, well, leadership's in China in terms of technology development, scale of deployment, mm-hmm. and policy leadership, frankly. Well, sometimes the market absolutely delivers uh, the best sets of returns, and sometimes you, the market doesn't. And I think when it comes to big planning, you know, markets don't create highways. Uh, markets don't accidentally you know, cause uh, you know, uh, electrical grids to, to come into play. Um, those things require coordinated efforts at the highest levels, and, and you're talking about China's energy policy. Energy policy has to be a matter of national uh, policy and priority. But that, so you want more government intervention in the marketplace, but that often is associated with spending and debt, which you say is, is part of uh, also problematic. I don't know if I'd call it intervention. I would call it, you know, we're going to be spending um, money one way or another. Uh, I would have very different priorities in terms of spending. If we're going to spend this kind of, you know, this year we're spending 40% more at the federal level than they're taking in. We have a 40% deficit. And when I look at where that money is really going, I don't actually support a lot of the directions personally. Um, because there's almost nothing to be found for energy in there. It's almost as if energy is not even remotely on our priority list. Our priority list seems to be getting a consumption back up, selling houses, and supporting the mortgage market, and making sure that our biggest banks and their bondholders are financially healthy and happy. So you would reorient more infrastructure development and less emphasis on those things? Absolutely. You know, the United States gets a, the Association of Engineers gives us about a D minus, I think now, for infrastructure. Um, and so uh, absolutely we should be investing in our own country. Bridges, water, energy, smart grid, we need a smart electrical grid. We absolutely need one. Here's a, here's a shame. I think uh, the last estimate I saw, is it would cost about $40 billion to create a, a, a smart grid. Um, and a smart grid meaning that we've got actual uh, voltage uh, meters and controllers that talk to the energy uh, infrastructure so that we create what we need when we need. And that $40 billion, we, it's just it can't, they, we can't find that money. It's just such a dogfight uh, over that. And um, that's about 20% of what was um, uh, guaranteed to Citibank one Saturday morning with no oversight or uh, anybody else involved. So we've got the money. It's just we don't have the priorities. Again, it's, the money isn't the issue in this story. It's what, are we want, what do we want to do, what do we value, what's important to us, and, and all of that. And I, I can feel my priorities are shifting drastically away from uh, the current and prior administrations. California's making some investments in that kind of infrastructure, but we're issuing $10 billion bonds for high-speed rail, $10 billion in bonds for, for water infrastructure. Uh, we're borrowing, which you say is that's typically the way infrastructure uh, investments are, are made. Do you think we should not borrow from infrastructure? Uh, I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know if I could really answer that. I, I think the investments have to be made. I would prefer that we didn't borrow um, for everything, but sometimes borrowing makes sense. So I'm not anti-debt. I'm, I'm really against debt that's what's in the parlance of bankers is called non-self-liquidating. It means debt that you just take on to consume, and it has no way of liquidating itself. It can't pay itself back. 
That's not the case for investments that are made in education, for uh, investments that are made in infrastructure. So if we want to really have a, a, you know, a high-tech society, we need the roads, the grid, the bridges, the ways of moving ourselves around. That all has to be in place. That is the proper role of government, in my mind, is to assure that that infrastructure is in place. It is not the proper role of government to intervene in an AIG contract dispute with Goldman Sachs. Right? So I just have a very different sense of where the proper role is and what's important. Would you support, if, if that's not the right way, would you support toll roads, increasing water prices to, to pay for those kinds of infrastructure? Well, if, if, you know, the question is how are we going to pay, um, for, those pay for those things? Well, uh, I think that we absolutely, you know, we've got to find the right ways to pay for those things, obviously. And it's, it's here's, here it is at the highest level. We, I think, got a distorted sense of how easy life was because we lived beyond our means for a while. So when I said we went from $26 trillion in debt to $52 trillion in debt, that makes things look pretty easy. Um, but you're living beyond your means. And one of the rules is either we're going to make that debt go away, meaning it's going to default, or we're going to pay it down. In the pay-down process, we're going to have to live below our means for a period of time. So the question is, how do we fund that, and, and will we have to tighten our belts a little bit? Yes, I, I think we, we're going to have to, but I, nobody's going to support that without a clear vision of why we're doing that. You think back to World War II, people, they talk about it, well, they sacrificed for the war effort, but mm-hmm. if you read a lot of books, they don't talk about it that way. There was, a, there was a common purpose in bringing all of your excess tin and rubber and things down to the collection center. There was a common purpose. Without the common purpose, I think just laying more taxes on is a recipe for political disaster and a lot of angry people. But with the right motivation, with the right framing, understanding the morality of the issue that we're up against, understanding um, I think people in this country can be counted on to do the right things. One of the things that, that hit me when I was watching your, your DVD was talking about this ballooning debt is the prospect of climate change adaptation. We often talk about mitigation and you know, slowing the, the growth of carbon emissions, but we know in California that no matter what we do, we're going to have to build levees, uh, we're going to have to change infrastructure, uh, invest in water systems will be intruded with, with salt water. We're going to have to spend a lot of money just maintaining what we already have today. And it seems like we're going to be in a very difficult situation to do that if this ballooning debt situation that you talk about. So if you consider sort of the adaptation angle on, on the debt angle in the future. Well, this is the thing that really concerns me is, is that if all we had to do was figure out how to fund the things we want to do, uh, I think we'd work it out. Um, what I'm worried about is that our whole way of, of, of funding things and the whole way our economy works depends on Nothing else sort of coming in from the outside disrupting it. And as I talked about, this energy situation is a disruptor. It has the capability to come in and sort of mess up this little economic story we've been telling ourselves. Because we'll work this one out. But we have these very large, serious pressures coming from the outside. And that's where I think whether you're an individual or whether you're a community or a state or a country, you should be preparing for um, the ways in which you can best use your money, use your resources today, to be prepared for or increasing your resilience towards these other shocks that may come. And if you do it right, you know, the worst that's going to happen, you'll find you have a more efficient way of, of using energy and you'll have lower energy costs because your buildings are built right and you'll have an upgraded new water infrastructure. To me, I, I can't see how to lose on this. Um, it just gets to the point we have to fundamentally change the stories we're telling ourselves about why we're making those investments. We've come to the point where we have one last question. Um, will our children have a lower or the same level standard of living as we enjoy? Well, you know, um, I purposely cut my standard of living in half, and I doubled my quality of life. 
So I like to dissociate those two things. Having things uh, is certainly a, a measure of, of happiness and success up to a point. After a point, uh, the studies show it doesn't really add much. After Do your a point. kids have Game Boy? I don't know how old they are. Do they have Game Boys or DS3s or any, those no. sorts of things? iPhones? No? <laughs> no. And they're okay with that? They're okay with that. They got iPods. Okay. Well, you know, got to have the iPods. Made but, in California. Yeah. No, we, we just, we live, you know, what's in the, where we get our satisfaction and happiness from is, is now about the community that we've got, the connections that we have. Uh, we, we have fun in ways that are, I think, a lot less consumptive than a lot of families, but it, it's been, it, we haven't even noticed it uh, at this point. We live absolutely high quality lives. How many people in this room would be willing to do the same thing? Easy to say, harder to do. Um, you got them. Chris Martinson, thank you very much for your time here today. Greg, thank you. Our guest at Climate One today is Chris Martinson, the author and futurist. I'm Greg Dalton, and that's the end of this program at Climate One.